do ask a continued interest in your prayers as we stand before you this morning. We were with Vestavia yesterday for their uh, New Year's meeting. Uh, Elder Lon Mazingo Jr. is uh, there this weekend. We appreciate his efforts um, last night on, in trying to preach to us on the faithfulness of God. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on the faithfulness of God, but that the preacher didn't at some point stress the unfaithfulness of man. Um, and that just seems to be sort of a, a reasonable parallel that has to go uh, with, with with that subject. Um, and as, as he was as he was speaking, he he reminded me of some things that I that I had heard in the past and studied in the past. Um, there are many examples in the Old Testament of faithful men or men doing faithful things. But we wouldn't say that man is completely unfaithful uh, or that, that God's people are completely unfaithful, but we can be unfaithful and faithful at the same time, depending on the situation and the circumstance. I, I guess you, un, you understand what I'm talking about. Abraham uh, was the friend of God, and Abraham did a lot of things right. Abraham did a lot of things wrong. Uh, Joseph did a lot of things right. As a matter of fact, you read through his, his life, he's one of the uh, strongest types and shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ found anywhere in the Old Testament. Joseph did a lot of things right. However, I'm not sure that turning the land of Egypt into a socialist market was the rightest thing to do. But... You know, you don't know if he did that or if that's just sort of an outflow of the circumstance and situation he was in at that time. But I, I digress from that. Uh, when, when, when Brother, Brother Mazingo was preaching about this, uh, it, it just it reminded me that when we look in the Old Testament, there are, there are abundant scriptures, there are abundant lessons that are types and shadows that point us to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can see in the life of Adam. Well, when you look at Adam, uh, Paul says specifically in Romans chapter 5 that Adam was a figure of him that was to come. So when you look at the life of Adam, you parallel it to the life of Christ and you understand what each one of them accomplished. Um so that there's abundant scriptures in the Old Testament uh, that are types and shadows that are figures of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are abundant good things in the life of these men that point us forward to look for Christ. But at the same time, there are enough faults and enough failures in these same men to show us the need for Christ. So you might could say that Christ is coming. Yeah, well, so what, right? Well, because if you were a Buddhist or you uh, were in some uh, Chinese religion or perhaps as some of our preachers learned when they went to the Philippines or when they went to India, uh, in many of these uh, Eastern mystical religions, the more gods you have, the better off you are. 
So to them, in one instance, if you said Christ is a God, they would say, good, he's a good add-on to our other gods. He's not an add-on. Uh, and I remember, remember, I think Brother Bradley had this issue many years ago. There was a young girl that just started coming to their congregation and uh, when her parents found out that she had embraced Christianity, they, they, they thought this, oh great, you've got another God. Imagine their surprise when they said, he's not an add-on. He's a takeover. When he comes in, all other gods are done away with. He's the only God that is needed. So if you said Christ is coming, yes, so what? You've got to understand now the purpose for his coming. It's not that he's an add-on. He's a takeover. And I happen to think about that. Um, I, ha- I, had another, I had another little thing I, I wanted to bring, but I wasn't quite happy with it. But, you know, yesterday at 3 o'clock, I didn't have much more. So I was look, reading out and studying on it. But then when Brother Mazingo was preaching, this thought came to my mind. What a wonderful thought it is. We've got God. So what? And we've got Christ. So what? God appears in the Old Testament. But what was the necessity for Christ appearing in the New Testament? Hang hang with me a little bit. See, pray for me. If you ain't prayed, start now. Because we're not throwing off on either one. We think that there's enough evidence in the Bible, enough Scripture in the Bible that teaches us about the presence of God, but also for the necessity of the presence of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Numbers. We, we, uh, number 16, we read from this uh, a few weeks ago about the rebellion of Korah and Dothan and Ibaram. And you read about the murmuring of the nation of Israel against Moses and against Aaron, against the things that had happened at that day and improper blame occurring and all sorts of things. And two times in Numbers chapter 16, verse 19 is the first occurrence. And then later on in uh, the chapter, Numbers 16.42, Numbers 16.19 says, Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And then in Numbers 16 and verse 41, it says, On the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. It came to pass that when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. 
And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation of the Lord, spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. They fell upon their faces. So what we're laying before you in these uh, two readings uh, is the idea that when the glory of the Lord appeared, people were in trouble. Moses feared and trembled and fell on his face before the Lord. Uh, Dothan and uh, Korah and and his group of people, they're going to lose their lives in this chapter. And by the end of this chapter, as we pointed out, almost 14,000 other Israelites also are going to lose their lives. And it all happened when the glory of the Lord showed up. The glory of the Lord was nothing to mess with. In the Old Testament. Now, you may ask, well, what's your definition of glory? That's a very good question. Because when you read uh, in Webster's Dictionary, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, if you look up the definition for glory, there's about 18 of them. Well, we think about glory land. Heaven's often described as glory land. It's it's described to us as a place of uh, great joy. Great pleasure, a place where there is no sin, a place where there is no problems. That's, that's reasonable. But we may also think about glory as somebody's honor, somebody's respect. In an overall sense, you can say that when the glory of the Lord showed up, you could say the awesomeness and the reverence of His presence appeared. There are just some people that when they do something, they are so good at what they do, they can't help but do it right. I'll give you an example of this. When back, back when we used to cut grass, oftentimes I tell people, say, I'll do this, I'll charge you that much. And they would say, I'll pay you this, I don't care what it looks like. Because they think, they think if we just show up and do a shoddy job, they don't have to pay as much. And in some cases, yeah, if I just kind of trashed at it, maybe I wouldn't charge as much or you wouldn't pay as much for something somebody just trashed at, right? Somebody just halfway did something. You wouldn't expect to pay as much. The problem is, is that when you're dealing with somebody who takes pride in what they do, they can't help but do it right. Because some of you in an older Congregation, you in the older life, what'd your parents say to you? What'd your daddy tell you? No use in doing it if you're not going to do it right. Right? Anything worth doing, worth doing right. So, you know, they'd look at me and say, I don't care what it looks like. Well, when I get done, you're going to care because you're going to like the way it looks, is what I would think. When the Lord shows up, He's not showing up halfway. He's walking in and He's taking over the entirety of everything. I mean, even when, even after Adam had sinned, and he heard, not saw, but he heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden, Adam was afraid. Not at what he saw, but just, just the very thing at what he heard. He was afraid. Kind of like last night. You know, New Year's Eve. Sitting here looking out my front door, 
And we're trying to figure out what exactly am I hearing? Because that doesn't sound like fireworks. You know what I'm talking about? Some of it wasn't fireworks. Some people got more money than I have. I don't have enough money to stand in my front yard and shoot my gun. Other people did. And we're kind of sitting here. And then there were some things that got kind of close. And I said to Samuel, go back in the house. And we went back in the house. It's just what we heard, not what we saw, what we heard got our attention and was frightening. What Adam heard and not what he saw, what he heard was frightening enough. Much less maybe at what he had heard. In Exodus 24, let's, let's notice this. In Exodus 24, um, I'd like to begin reading in uh, verse 12 says, Exodus 24, 12, The Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and the law and commandments, which I have written that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said to the elders, Tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Listen, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. They're standing down here at the bottom of the mountain, looking up, and they see this cloud that has descended on the top of Mount Sinai. And what do they see? They see something that's like a devouring fire. Try and put yourself in their position. But it's kind of hard to. It's kind of hard to, to imagine what it's like if you've never been where it's like what it is. So, for example, have you ever watched your house burn down? I, I've never watched my house burn. My house has never caught on fire, never burned down. I know people whose house has. Hard to imagine how they feel. Watching something they can't control like that. But we have been in situations where things have been definitely out of our control and all we can do is watch the wreck. So you're down here on the bottom of this mountain and you're looking up and you see this consuming fire over the entire mountain. Not just a small burning, it's not just a burning bush at this point. This is an entire mountain. Moses is up in there in that. No wonder Israel says at one point, we don't know what's happened to Moses. That's, that's a reasonable question in Exodus 32 when they said to Aaron, Moses has been gone 40 days, we don't know what's happened to him. He's up here on top of this mountain, it's on fire, he's probably dead. To them, what they saw was the glory of God, but what they also saw was something that looked like this 
huge devouring fire. In uh, Exodus 40, notice also in Exodus 40, with stories here and there, or narratives here and there, uh, the majority of the book of Exodus is about uh, establishing the tabernacle, uh, establishing the, the tabernacle, and establishing the worship, and uh, all the intricate details of all of that. Uh, it's quite boring to the lay reader. Now, maybe some of you engineers like the intricate things. Some of us like to paint broad, as we said earlier. Some people like to do very pinpoint. But I'd like for you to notice here at the end of the book. It does say this, the work is finished, uh, the tabernacle is set, and it says in Exodus 40 and verse 34, that then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode their own and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is not the first time that this happens. You remember Solomon built a temple one time. They've got, they've got here in Exodus this little tent curtain thing. But Solomon, many years later, builds this great stone, humongous temple. Same thing happens. Whether you want to read in First uh, Kings eight, or whether you read, want to read in Second Chronicles five, doesn't matter. Story is the same. The glory of the Lord comes down, fills the tabernacle, fills the temple. In this case, Moses is not able to go in. In Solomon's day, Solomon was not able to go in. The ministers that were there, they were not able to minister the work because the glory of the Lord has showed up. It's like, it's like you're playing high school sports and everybody's cheering for you. But in the beginning of the third quarter, instead of the other high school team coming out, Professional ball players come out. And it's like, yeah, who wants to look at us anymore? Because the superstars are here. Whenever the glory of the Lord appeared, those who were there were unable to do anything else. They were unable to move. They were unable to go anywhere. They were unable to do anything. Um, it was it was an effectual presence of God. We we teach a doctrine called um, irresistible grace. We teach a, a doctrine called the effectual call of the Spirit. I know that people 
don't believe this doctrine in the world. But I also know they don't understand it. If they truly understood the power of Almighty God, everybody would understand this. Everybody would believe what we teach. I do realize that there is a will inside a man. And I do understand that there are times that God suffers things to occur. But it is not because He refuses to interfere with man's free will. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Oh, God won't do that. He doesn't want to interfere with your free will. Pray tell where God ever asked Mary, hey, would you like me to interfere with your free will? He never said, God never said to Mary, hey, I got a thing I'd like to do. You want to cooperate with me? Never said that to her, did he? He simply sent an angel and said, guess what? You're going to have a child. Really? Yes. The power of the Most High shall overshadow thee, and that thing which shall be conceived in you is of the Holy Ghost. Huh? Just go with me here, okay? Never once did the Lord say to Mary, would you like to cooperate? Never once did the Lord say to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, that pride that you've got there is a little too much. If you don't back off on that, I'm going to bring you down. He never said that to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar just walks out and says, Look at this and that, this great Babylon which I've created by my might, for my glory, by my power. And while the words were yet warm in his mouth, God visited him, struck him down, and drove him out to eat grass like an oxen for seven years. God's not too worried about other people's free will because when He steps on the scene, He really takes over. And sometimes, sometimes the effect of God's presence sometimes is not even known by the person it's affecting. And I'm going to show you this. Exodus, um, turn with me to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Notice verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18. When you find it, say amen. Okay, good. And he said, I beseech thee, shew me thy glory. This is Moses talking to God. This is Moses saying to God, show me thy glory. And he said, this is the Lord speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now notice verse 20. Are you listening to verse 20? He said, Thou canst not see my face, for thou shalt no man see me and live. Now, pause there for a minute. I have a question. Moses said, show me thy glory. Right? Y'all read the same thing I read, right? God's answer to him is, no man can see my face. 
What's God's face got to do with His glory? Hmm? Not going to answer that right now, but that is, I think, a reasonable question. That's not what Moses asked. But maybe seeing the glory of God has something to do with seeing the face of God. Because it was an important thing. When God said, when the Bible said that God spoke to Abraham as a man speaketh to his friend face to face. Right? I, look, I, I get nervous when I text. Real nervous. Matter of fact, if you were to look in my phone right now, I got about 47 unanswered texts. Unread text, by the way. Well, they sort of get read on the front of it, but then sometimes they're not responding. I get nervous. Because I don't know how the reader is going to perceive what I write. But when you're looking at me, when I'm speaking to you face to face, there's no question as to whether I'm being joyful when I say this or whether I'm being hateful when I say this. And there are so many problems in our life that have occurred because people have misunderstood the context of a written sentence. Let's just move on. He said, no man shall see my face or see me and live. Now the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and thou shalt stand upon a rock and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by and I will take away mine hand and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Moses is going to be hid here in a rock. And when the glory of the Lord, or at least the back portion of the Lord, passes by, Moses will get a glimpse at that being hidden in the rock, and he'll live. More on that in a moment. But now turn. Moses is having this conversation with the Lord. This is... Um, this is the second time uh, that Moses has gone up on the mount, uh, up on the mount uh, to, to receive from the Lord the Ten Commandments. The first time, we read a little bit earlier, um, the first time he came down with those commandments was in Exodus 32. And he saw the ruckus and the confusion and the chaos going down there, them dancing around this golden calf and... and and Moses becomes the most sinful man in all the Bible because he breaks all ten commandments at one time. Got it? Throws the commandments down, breaks them. Huge chaos erupts out of that. Now we're going up the second time to get the commandments again. Exodus 34. Um where are we at here? Exodus 34, about verse, verse 29. Exodus 34, 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in Moses' hand, 
when he came down from the mount that Moses wist not. The term wist, W-I-S-T, means no. He knew not. Knew not what? That the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. This is what I, this is what I meant a while ago when sometimes the effect of God on a person may not necessarily be known by the person themselves. Now, the reason that I have to make the reason I have to pause at this point um, is because I don't want somebody to think that I'm trying to espouse something that was called the hollow log doctrine many years ago. Uh, and that there was a time amongst our people where we taught something called, or they, they some people believe something called a hollow log doctrine. In other words, you go out in the woods, there's a hollow log. In the night, some animal runs into the log, some rabbit comes from the log, some snake slithers into the log, sleeps there for the night, wakes up the next morning, crawls out. The animal was in there, the animal lived in there, however, the animal and the log had nothing to do with each other, the log didn't change the animal, the animal didn't change the log. And so their idea is that a person can be a child of God and not know it. I disagree with that. I don't think that when God changes a person, He leaves him the way he was when He found him. Saul of Tarsus is an example of that. When God touched Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus was changed. When God touched you, you were changed. But the more time that you spend reading God's Word and the more time that you spend in fellowship with God and in fellowship with His saints, it will change you whether you realize it or not. And Peter is an example of that when he's standing out here warming himself by the fire of the wicked out here and Jesus is inside there being ridiculed and they ask him, weren't you with him? No, I wasn't. Weren't you with him? No, I wasn't. Weren't you with him? No, I wasn't. And the little girl says, your speech berayeth thee. Your speech betrays you. You sound just like him. In other words, you're changed and you don't realize it. In other words, there's a difference between regeneration, which is what occurred in Saul of Tarsus' life, and conversion. When Jesus said to Peter, he said, when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. See the point here? There's a difference between receiving life and walking in that newness of life. Here Moses has been up here on the mountain with the Lord. And the glory of the Lord is sort of radiating from Moses. You know, like the moon glows at night. But it's not the moon glowing, is it? What do we know about it? What has science told us about the moon glowing at night? It's, it's not glowing. It's reflecting the light of the sun that's shining on it. You're not glowing because you're such a warm, wonderful person. You're glowing because the light of God is reflecting off of you. 
And Moses, uh, uh, this is this passage is addressed by the Apostle Paul uh, later on. Um, I believe about uh, it's, it's 2 Corinthians three that Paul addresses this. But I'd like for you to notice here. We'll just continue reading this before we move to the next thing. Um, where did we leave off here? The, the, uh, well, let's, let's back up. Verse 32, And afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. There's an interesting interesting position I guess that Moses is in. When he's before the Lord, he looks one way. When, when he's before the people, he, he, he looks another way. Was Moses being a hypocrite? Well, he's not acting different. But he is, he is in a different position. He can be more open with the Lord sometimes than he can be with God's people. In other words, I can tell you I'm a sinner. I can tell God what I, how I've sinned. And it may be necessary that I tell God's people how I've sinned at a point. But also, you kind of got you got you got this individual here being affected by God, who's just radiating and glowing. You ever been around somebody that you felt like was a better Christian than you, and you just kind of wanted to back off a little bit because? You know, I'm not like that person. I'm not like them. I think sometimes, I think sometimes, I wonder sometimes that some people don't attempt to portray themselves as better than they are because they're really afraid how other people are going to treat them. Is that a reasonable question? You know, can I just kind of drop that one for free? Y'all don't have to pay for that one. What, what do we got here? What do we got? We've got the glory of the Lord showing up. Punishing people in uh, number 16. Running folks out of the temple with Solomon and, and Moses. Frightening Israel. I mean, the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, nothing to play with, right? So what's this got to do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And if you're a Bible reader at all, you possibly know where I'm going with this. The Bible says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
I'm not sure how those, I'm, I'm not sure how, how denominations who believe that Jesus Christ is just a good prophet or it, 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 those who believe Jesus Christ is some sort of uh, created angel who elevated himself to his current position. I'm really not sure how they get around that verse. Because it seems to me, and it should seem to you, that the text is fairly straightforward. That in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. I know, I know the Jehovah's Witness kind of get around it because in their book, um, in their book that they, they have the, uh, New World Translation, that they changed this verse to say the Word was a God. You know, I, I shouldn't even spend two, two seconds on deciding whether or not that's a legitimate text. But suffice it to say, there are those who don't believe that Jesus is God. Have a problem with that. Not that I have a problem with it being a heretical doctrine. That's not, that's not what I have a problem with. I have a problem that if he's not God, then the application of John chapter 1 doesn't mean anything. As I said earlier, there's plenty of places in the Old Testament where God showed up, right? Terrifying, terrible things happened in some of those cases. I kind of, I kind of, Sidetracked a little bit on free will a while ago when, uh, and, and I forgot to mention this, as that people oftentimes teach this free will thing is some cooperation between you and God if you can kind of get together. God may be working with you, but you're able to resist Him. And if, if you are able to do that, that's fine. I, I would just simply offer this to you. Um, at the end of service, we're going to get a screwdriver. And we're going to come over here and we're going to pull the plate off of this wall socket over here. And I'm going to give you opportunity to just stick that screwdriver, not, not in the socket, but just on the bare wire. And let's see what happens. Or perhaps we'll just go downstairs. We, we won't even mess with this silly little 110 stuff down here. We're going to go downstairs to them great big, long, huge, are they 220 wires that come into the building? Those big 220 wires? And just go ahead and grab a hold to one of those. And let's see what happens. I mean, come on. Use your free will and resist the electricity. That's all you got to do. Not going to happen, is it? How long is it going to take you to realize you made a mistake? About three seconds? Cut less than that, yeah. Uh, as, as uh, you know... There's a sign at uh, an electrical company as you walk up to the door. It says, you know, now hiring. And, and outside of the, the building, there's uh, two uh, chalky footprint on the ground. It says experience needed. Some of y'all going to get that. Uh, I just want to see the person who's going to be man enough to resist God. That, that's, all, that's all I'm asking. And you understand that that's ridiculous. Nobody is man enough or woman enough. Let's, let's get equal with this. There's no man or woman, man or woman enough to resist God. 
And yet the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, that thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Whose name? Christ's name. And why are we calling him Emmanuel? Because interpreted Emmanuel means God with us. Not just God on our side. God's not just with us because He's on our side. God is with us because He is in our presence. See, this Word that was with God and this Word that was God, verse 14, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And look at what John says here. What, what does John say about this? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But what's the necessity of Christ coming? The necessity of Christ coming was the fact that Christ, the, the, the second person in the Trinity, God the Son, came, laid aside the glory He had up there, and came down here and dwelt among us, and the deity that was in Him, veiled with human flesh, allowed us to walk amongst Him and Him to walk amongst us and allowed us to talk to Him and walk with Him and touch Him, something that's never occurred before. There's ample Scripture that shows us what happened when God showed up in the Old Testament. But what happened when God showed up in the New Testament? They had the honor and privilege of beholding, as they would say, what manner of man is this? Uh, let, me, let, me, let me point you also to this. 2 Corinthians. Here's one that's, that's astounding. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Love this illustration that Paul uses here. He begins by saying in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Where are we going? We're going all the way back to the beginning of time. When God said, let there be light, and immediately there was light. Light didn't argue. Light didn't say, maybe next time. God just said, let there be light, and there was light. And that same God that commanded the light to shine out of darkness, He says here, has shined in our hearts. That same God that spoke the world into existence spoke to you. And notice what it says here. He hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. We're going to see the glory of God in the face of Christ? Well, what did God tell Moses? Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God said, nobody's going to see my face and live. But I tell you what, I'll hide you in a rock. 
As a matter of fact, I'll hide you in a person called Christ. I'll choose you and elect you and redeem you in a person called Christ. And as Christ covers you, you will be able to see me pass by. You will see me in heaven in the face of Christ. As a matter of fact, I'm going to come down here and I'm going to walk 33 and a half years amongst you. And you're going to see me in the face of Christ. I cannot lie. So I'm going to come down here in the person of Christ who is the truth. I am faithful. So I'm going to come down here in the person of Jesus Christ who's done all things well. I cannot die. But I will come down here in the person of Christ and I will take on the bodily shape of human beings. I will take on human flesh and I'll crucify that flesh on your behalf. And I'll ascend back to heaven and I'll prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. So I have a problem with people saying that Jesus Christ is not God. Not from a heretical doctrine standpoint, but from a pure application standpoint that God said, I will come down and I will dwell with you and you shall see me. Jesus would say to Philip at one time when Philip said, show us the Father. What did Philip say? I mean, what did Jesus say? Have I been with you so long and still you don't understand? If you've seen me... You've seen the Father. As Moses will remind us in the book of Hebrews, that you're not come to Mount Sinai that burns and is terrifying and is frightful. But where are you come? You come to the church of the firstborn. The church of the Lamb of God. I'm not looking then for the glory of God to appear. Maybe I'm looking for the glory of Christ to appear. Maybe I'm looking down here that the glory of Christ would be amongst us. Because the glory of God drove people out. Drove them out of the temple. Drove them down in their face. They did worship, but they had to worship like this. Couldn't look up. But when Christ came, that glory veiled in human flesh. He said, come unto me. All my children that labor, they're heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Boy, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful to understand the necessity and purpose of the coming of Christ? May the glory of Christ be with us this year. Thank you for your good.